large-scale data analysis was pioneered by Google with the MapReduce paper. Since then, Google's approach to analytics has evolved rapidly, marked by papers like Dremel and Dataflow. Dremel combined a column-oriented distributed file system with a novel way of processing queries. A single Dremel query is distributed into a tree of servers, starting with the root server, splitting into the intermediate servers, and ending with the leaf servers, which talk directly to the file system. Once the data is pulled from the file system into the leaves, the data propagates back to the root server and is shuffled along the way so that the root server receives a sorted response. When Google started turning its internal services into customer-facing cloud products, the effort to productize Dremel began, and BigQuery was born. Jordan Tagani is an engineering lead who works on BigQuery, and he joins the show to discuss the evolution of the data warehouse. Large-scale distributed queries still can take a long time, but the queries get faster every year. Queries that required a nightly Hadoop job 10 years ago can be viewed in a frequently updated user-facing dashboard today. Power users of BigQuery talk about the speed and the query interface as being two of the most valuable differentiating features. As the job of a large-scale data analyst becomes less technically intensive, tools like BigQuery will continue to rise in popularity. We've done some great shows about Google Papers and products like Spanner and Dremel and Dataflow, and you can find these old episodes by downloading the free Software Engineering Daily app for iOS and for Android. In the other podcast players, you can only access the most recent 100 episodes. With these apps, we are building a new way to consume content about software engineering. And these apps are open-sourced at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. If you're looking for an open-source project to get involved with, we'd love to get your help. Shout-out to today's featured contributor on the Software Engineering Daily open-source project, Shreyans Sheth. Shreyans has worked on the Software Engineering Daily search API and has also helped us to understand some open-source best practices which we are still learning. Thanks again, Shreyans, for your work, your contributions, and your commentary. Now let's get on with this episode. Jordan Tigani is an engineering lead at Google. Jordan, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're going to talk about BigQuery today, and to get people acquainted with what BigQuery is, why don't you explain what a data warehouse is and what people are looking to get out of the idea of a data warehouse? That's a great question. I think a data warehouse has sort of a somewhat of an old school pedigree. You know, it comes from, you know, people with large data systems that, you know, maybe perhaps aren't aren't necessarily large by today's standards, but you know, there's they tend to have a very specific idea of what type of data they want to store and and how they want to store it. There's sort of like the Kimball method of sort of data warehousing of how you structure your data with fact tables, dimension tables. But it's really for, you know, that enterprises enterprises use a data warehouse to to analyze analyze reports over their data. It's almost been sort of like it's sort of very I would structured is not, not the right term, but it's very somewhat narrow how they're used. And I think mm-hmm. BigQuery is a data warehouse, and but we're also trying to be a little bit more than a data warehouse. We're, you know, it's a, 
analyzing any structured data without worrying about how the data is laid out. You don't need a DBA. You don't need a lot of the database optimization that people are used to in their in their data warehouses, because you know the way BigQuery is designed, that everything is a is a, is a table scan that you know we can we can do things that are usually slow very fast. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think data warehouse has a connotation that historically maybe you just use it to get these nightly reports and it aggregates this data in an offline fashion. But with BigQuery or with other newer, more modern data, what we might have called data warehousing systems in the past, now we call them maybe data engineering or something else, we might take data from a production database and put it into the data warehouse but it might not just be used this data warehouse might not just be used for nightly reports it might also be used for for actual you know functionality application functionality how do you think about the usage of a data warehouse for serving user requests is it is it for that also or is it just for offline calculations i think it absolutely can but i think you you get to actually one of the the real, the important part about a data warehouse is that it it is separate from your your sort of online database where you have, you know, your database has the current state of whatever's happening. And it's very important to have, you know, high, high numbers of transactions, high numbers of updates per second. And you can almost think of the data warehouse as sort of the log of all the things that happen to that database. And you want to be able to analyze that without impacting what's happening on the, the online, online side. And I think, there's the kind of you you build up the the nightly reports for the you know the executives that look look at it in the morning and they they can see how the business is doing but there's also sort of the ad hoc analysts being able to figure out you know they want to they want to ask questions about the data maybe they're going to do some predictive analytics or maybe they just want to want to build some charts they want to test a hypothesis and i think you, you, there's also the you know can we can we turn this over to to customers and, you know, when, when the customer hits your website, can it run a query? Mm-hmm. And that's also something that's, that's made possible with sort of with the, your data warehouse in the cloud, especially with, with something that will scale out nicely like, like BigQuery, where you don't necessarily have to worry about tightly controlling the load or who, who gets access to it. Mm-hmm. And the reason I want to do this introduction is to give people a perspective for, you know, the past that this data warehouse was largely an, an offline thing that was sort of hard to deal with, but it's gradually become lower latency. It's become easier to deal with. And one of the tools that enables that is BigQuery. And now that we have that introduction, I want to start to frame what exactly BigQuery is. I think it's a storage system, but it's also a system for querying that storage. Give your explanation for what BigQuery is. Okay, so I mean, I usually say it's a you know large scale SQL query engine and a structured data store. And you know, one of the nice things about BigQuery is is the sort of the separation between between compute and storage. You know, you can scale your your queryability completely separately to how you how you scale your your data storage. And you know, it's a the, so the query engine is this is this sort of massively parallel multi tenant shared shared pool of servers that basically pick your your SQL queries apart, send them out to an individual shards where each one of those shards operates over a small portion of the 
of the data. And then there's, you know, a number of aggregation stages depending on how, how complex your, your query is. So it's this sort of, sort of dynamic shared multi-tenant pool of query resources. And then it's also a structured storage system that, you know, scales out to, to, to petabytes, many, many petabytes and, and is designed to sort of manage your data so that, so that it allows fast, fast analysis to, to your data. For example, like, you know, something that, you know, if you have sort of perfectly sharded data, you can often get much faster query performance and it doesn't matter what type of analysis system you're using. And that's one of the things that we try to do is people are adding, constantly adding their data over time, maybe in small chunks, maybe in large chunks, maybe, you know, what the weekends are small and the other days are, are large, or maybe they're streaming at an, at an inconsistent rate. And, you know, we make sure that the data is sort of in the right shape to be fast when the user wants to query it. The speed of BigQuery is largely enabled by Dremel. Explain what Dremel is. Okay, so Dremel is a internal tool. Actually, one of our one of our engineers built when he was he was essentially tired of waiting for MapReduces to finish, and you know, MapReduces were too slow. And while he was waiting, he's like, "Oh, I'll just I'll you know column stores are are cool. I'll build a column store because I only need to access a, full, a few columns out of this." wide data set and then I'll build a SQL parser. And then of course, since it's Google, we'll make it scale out and we'll make it scale out to, you know, you know, as far out as, as, as we want, because that's sort of just the, the ethos here is sort of scaling out versus, versus scaling up. So as they built this sort of, you know, he was, this is sort of a 20% project and he got a couple other people working on it, but it turned into like this, you know, the system that was extremely popular at Google, and it has sort of it's a tree structured, tree structured analysis. So I mentioned your query sort of gets picked apart and passed down to the shards. There, the sort of the lowest level of the tree is where it sort of directly accesses the data, and then aggregations happen at higher levels of the tree. So that was sort of the initial version of Dremel. It's since gotten a, a bit more, a bit more dynamic, especially since queries don't always just sort of have a single aggregation aggregation phase. But, you know, so Dremel is this, is this execution system that, you know, I guess the, the other key, key point of it also is just that it's multi-tenant. So we can have a much larger tree and devote a lot more resources to each individual query because we have lots of, we have lots of people using that same tree. And, you know, sometimes, you know, one user is going to be using it heavily and sometimes another user is going to be using it heavily. And we can sort of fill in the gaps and end up devoting, you know, a lot of computing power per per query. Mm-hmm. Let's save the execution engine and the query serving part for a little bit later. Talk a little bit about the storage. You're going to store this data in columnar format. Can you explain the advantages of columnar storage? Sure. Columnar storage, you can think of it as, as instead of storing in, in a file, you have, you store one row at a time. That's sort of traditional row-based storage, columnar storage, you could, you could also think of it as storing a single file has, has one column. And we often sort of concatenate those into a, into a single file or, or a single location in a file. But, but effectively, it's, you know, you have all the data for a single column is, is contiguous. So the, the advantage of this are, you know, most queries don't access all the columns in the table. You might have 300 columns in the table, and you you access you access four. So if you have a row-based storage system, 
you really have to read all of the all of the columns for every query, which makes it inefficient because often you are you end up being I/O bound. So the the speed at which you can read data off of the off of whatever media it's on is the limiting factor in your query. So if you only have to read you know a few percent of that, that's going to be you know you can get an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude performance improvement. The next bit is is compression. So if we compress the data, that means we have to read less of it. That means we can essentially go effectively go faster. And the compression of you know compression across a row tends to not get very good very good packing, very very high compression ratio, because you know compression works by eliminating redundancy. And there's not a lot of redundancy across a row where you have a username and a customer ID and an order ID. Like, you know, there's not a lot of shared information there. But if you look at just at, you know, say the customer, you know, the, the state in which they live, you know, there's 50 states in the U.S. So there's only 50 fields that that's, that could possibly possibly have, but maybe those are spelled out. So, you know, those, those essentially can be compressed, compressed very highly. And our actually, our storage system well, I can get into, I could get into this a little bit later, but you know that those are the the primary benefits. And you can also play interesting interesting games with the storage that sort of get into some more technical details that are opened up by a column store. Mm-hmm. In order to put this data in columnar format, are we often taking it from a row based format, like a production database, like my user's database, and then Reformatting it, reformatting it in a columnar way in order to store it and serve it in the manner that would be useful to the type of big query queries that we're getting. Yes, I mean, essentially, for you know, from the user perspective, they don't have to necessarily worry worry about how we're storing it. You know, they just they give us the data in the format that's convenient for them, and we 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 support a bunch of formats, including CSV and JSON and Avro. We're currently sort of alpha testing parquet as well. You know, so th- these are all, you know, these all except the latter was our row-based formats. And so the users are kind of responsible for getting the data, you know, out of their data, out of their data database or wherever they have it stored and into one of those, one of those formats. There's also another option, however, which is, which is streaming. And so you can take, and I think, you know, actually long-term, this is going to be probably the most, most interesting hmm. way to write your data. So you can basically send, a single rows or single clusters of rows and just send an HTTP post request to BigQuery and those immediately get added to your table. So if you run a, if you send this request, you know, these 10 rows, you get an HTTP 200 back, and then you run a query immediately afterwards, those data, that data will be returned in that, in that query. And if you think about large data sets, pretty much all large data sets are created over time. And so really they're created, the data comes in some sort of streaming fashion. And what we think of is, you know, we often take, you know, a day's worth of worth of data and load that at a time. These are sort of like just fixed windows on the stream of data that's coming in. And I think as we sort of have better and better tools, we're going to just start seeing more people just want to operate over streams and stream their stream their data in and not worry about having to collect it and batch it periodically. So. The columnar storage had been used in different ways prior to Dremel being built, but Dremel allowed for some faster and more parallel query response. So let's get into the idea of a Dremel query. Describe what happens in a Dremel query. So your query comes into BigQuery. We figure out where the table is, where the data is stored, 
we kind of route you route it to the right production data center and it starts talking to the to the gets assigned a, a query master and the query master is you know, i guess you can think of it as sort of like a MapReduce master and it's responsible for figuring out how many workers you need how many partitions are in the table you know how to actually plan the query so it you know it generates a query plan can talk to the scheduler to basically say i i need this many this many shards and then the the query then gets you know the scheduler assigns it some some shards that it can that it can run on the shards or the are the workers and then it, the query gets dispatched to the shards and so if you think of you're just doing like a you know a select sum over some field you know the way you can implement that is you know the way you can do that in parallel is you know each you can send that out to a thousand different workers and each one of those thousand workers reads one file and each one computes a, a partial sum and then you basically send it to some sort of aggregator and the aggregator computes the the sort of total sum over those over those partial sums then you have the you have the final result obviously that's a very simplistic simplistic version but in general you know that's sort of a two stage two stage query there's the the bottom stage which is the scan and partial aggregation the second stage is the is the final aggregation and in general in bigquery and in dremel in between those stages the shuffle and it's a sort of a fast in memory in memory shuffle operation you can think of a shuffle as a as a sort but you don't always you generally don't need to do a full sort it's just sort of a, a hashing so where the things that look the same go to the same the same place and in this in this case where we have this really simple query you know that wasn't needed but let's say we we're doing a group by we we're doing a group by user id and a and a sum and sort of the group by would mean that all of the the values with the same user id would go to the same would get shuffled to the same location and then that one worker could could operate over all the values with that with that id and so you can you can do those in parallel, and you know that you can operate as as if you know all the you have all the data for that for that user in that one shard, and then there might be maybe a final aggregation stage as well. Right. To recap, this Dremel query executes as a tree. The root server is going to talk to a collection of intermediate servers, and each intermediate server might be talking with more intermediate servers. And these are called mixers. And then at the bottom of the tree, the leaf servers, at the because the, the, they're leaves because they're at the bottom of the tree, they're querying the distributed storage layer, which is uh, probably Google's file storage layer, the, the Colossus layer. And then the results are aggregated back up the tree and then reduced into a simple response. Can we go into the roles of those different node types in more detail, the, the mixers and the leaf servers and the root server? So what, what you've described is exactly what's written in the Dremel paper that I think was in 2006. Ah, a little dated. So, you know, we've, and we often talk about things in that, in that same way just because they're easier, to, they're easier to understand. But for the last, I guess, three or four years, it's been a different system. So the original system with the mixers and the, you know, the root mixer and the intermediate mixers and the, and the leaf servers was very fixed and it worked super well for certain things It worked you know, super well for just sort of like simple scan filter aggregate queries, but it was, it 
didn't work very well for things like things like joins or things where maybe you want to do an aggregate by you want to do a group by one key and then you want to group in an outer query you do a group by another key or you were doing analytics queries so there's sort of a bunch of things that that just required something more complex than this simple tree and you'd end up having to do multiple traversals of this tree the current version of the system will dynamically you can sort of think of it as dynamically building that tree. So the sort of the scheduler, as that I mentioned, the scheduler and the root mixer, they sort of figure out how many levels of the tree that you need and we'll, we'll build that tree on a per query basis. So, you know, the, we still have the, the low level, the initial, you know, nodes at the root that are, that are directly reading the data and, and doing sort of the first level of, of querying. And then the next Next phases are often doing aggregation, but they also might be doing a join. They might be doing a union, or they might be doing analytic functions, which often, you know, are would otherwise require a separate traversal of the tree. So it's a much more dynamic system, and sort of much more much more efficient because you only essentially have to make one one pass through the tree. And the other thing that that is is key is is instead of so sometimes you can pass data directly from one to the other. So the in the initial Dremel tree, it was essentially an RPC that was happening from the mixer to the nodes, and then they'd return with you know some partial partial data, and that would cause you know problems because if the amount of data that had to be returned was larger than can be returned in a single RPC, then you'd often get these errors, you know, resources exceeded errors. And so now instead of directly passing data back, we sort of pass data back through this shuffle layer. And the shuffle layer lets you kind of expand the amount of data passed in between layers in the node to be much larger. Now that we've talked a little bit more about the distributed query execution engine, what's the ideal way to have this data laid out in the storage system, given how we're going to be executing queries against it? You know, that's sort of one of the things that we try to do as sort of the as sort of the magic of BigQuery. You know, often we have, you know, the there's a certain size of data that you want basically each one of these workers to be to be operating on. If you make if we make that size too small, then we spend all of our time opening files. If we make that size too too large, then we don't get much much parallelism. Say if you have you know, a hundred megabyte table and all that data is in a single file and it's only operated on by a single worker, you don't get any parallelism. So hmm. there's sort of the, this sort of data optimization layer that, that, that goes on that tries to figure out, you know, based on the query, query history, how should we distribute this, this data? You know, there's also, you can partition your data, you can partition it based on a date field. And that, that'll also kind of determine how, how your data ends up being being laid out on on Colossus. Talk more about that file storage layer, Colossus, and the the interaction between the leaf nodes and Colossus. Like, or I guess it's you said it's not exactly the the same naming convention as the leaf nodes anymore. But what's going on in that that query layer, the direct layer between the nodes and the storage layer where they're querying it? from like you just just describe the interaction between the leaf nodes and the storage layer sure so colossus is sort of the successor to google file system to, to gfs and it you know solves a lot of the some of the scaling problems that that gfs had colossus divides up the 
data access into, there's two basically things you want to talk to. One, one is the curator server, one is the D system. And D ends up living, you know, one of the interesting things about the way the Google Google data centers are, are, are laid out is that we have this distributed storage system and we have these sort of containerized, you know, workers and the same machines that run the workers also in general also host the host the disks. We don't really try to do try to have locality where you keep the data local to to the same machine you're operating on. In fact, we we sort of do the opposite. We try to spray it across as many disks as as possible. And this gives you a, you know a super high overall throughput. So if you're reading from all those you know hundreds of thousands of disks at once, the effective throughput that you can get is incredibly high, which, you know, is, is how we can, you know, some queries we can, you know, we can run almost as fast as some in-memory, in-memory queries, even though we're, even though we're reading it off of, off of spinning disks. Hmm. We have the Colossus Curator. The Colossus Curator sort of tells us, hey, this is where the data lives. You know, we may say, we, we give it a path and has a bunch of, you know, files and it says, okay, this is where those files live. These are the D servers to talk to. And then the the nodes will generally talk to the talk to the D servers to pull pieces of the capacitor, which is our, our file format. Pull pieces of the capacitor files files back. Data tends to be sort of in in reasonably small stripes. And so if you're thinking about like so the the data in a column is stored together. You know one one other advantage of, of a column store is that let's say we're reading you know it's a hundred megabyte file and we're reading you know, three columns, and each one of those columns is, is, say, one megabyte. So each one of those columns is going to come from a different D server. So instead of having to do three different three different seeks and three different sort of take the same disk spindle and have it have it have to read all this data, we can actually read all that data in parallel. How does a query on BigQuery compare to a MapReduce query? It's interesting that there's there are very they're very much a duel of each other. Like when we had the the tree structure of Dremel, it wasn't as clear what the mapping was, but actually it's it's you know it's quite similar now. I mean map, you know, map reduce tends to be, you know, map combine, shuffle, and reduce. And so, you know, the mapper is in BigQuery is sort of the shards which are doing the essentially the the scanning of the data. You know, we Combine and shuffle that happens in the kind of the you know we we actually do have a shuffle involved and then the reduce would be sort of where the aggregation happens, but like in like in MapReduce you know when most interesting problems you want to solve most interesting things you want to ask of your data involve can't really be represented in a single map and reduce phase and so you know we might end up having you know map map shuffle join reduce and then join again, and then reduce again. It lets us be a little bit more, a little bit more flexible. But I think you sort of modern MapReduce systems also can can do the same the same thing. Can you maybe give an example of a query that would be a good fit for Dremel and one that would be a good fit for MapReduce? So I think that anything that would be good for MapReduce would be good for for hmm. Dremel. Okay. You know, I think writing out large amounts of data. That's not even true anymore. It used to be that writing out large amounts of data would be better in a MapReduce than it would be in BigQuery. But you know, we can we can write out data from the shards. So I don't think there would be advantage to using one versus the other. MapReduce tends to be more sort of static. You know, you basically you spin up a pool of workers, 
then you have this sort of static pool that you know you own completely and it's and it's used entirely in this computation but if you know especially if it's a large a large computation you may need you may only need all of those workers for for a small portion of the operation but yet you're sort of you're you're stuck with them so you either have to sort of over allocate the the numbers of workers you have so that the one phase that needs all those you know that is that is super wide can execute quickly or you under allocate in which case like you know you're not you don't have a lot of idle workers sitting around but the kind of the part of the, your part of the query that's most most data intensive may execute more slowly and that's sort of one of the advantages of you know bigquery we have and dremel is sort of this dynamic tree that we will allocate different numbers of shards for each stage of the each stage of the query and we can actually dynamically adjust those and then the rest of them essentially can, can get used by by other queries for people who are new to the concept of a data warehouse or who are new to bigquery talk a little bit about the usability and how the patterns for people using this for example how often you know if i have a production user database and it's getting updated with new user data every day and as you know i've got a user interactions database as well and i want to pull this data into bigquery on some schedule and and then i want to be able to run analytics queries on it how am i using bigquery how do i set it up to pull that data from my production database into the essentially my data my data warehouse or whatever you would call it the the bigquery storage layer so that's something that i have a little bit less insight into than you know than perhaps some of the the internals but you know we see we see a wide range of how people are are doing this i mean some people are you know they're they're generating event, events and those events get get streamed directly to bigquery hmm. sometimes they they have an hourly or a nightly you know batch process that extracts extracts the data that they need and loads it into into bigquery i think what we often find is is that the period you know will de- decreases over time so you know f- people will often start with you know okay i'll take my daily dump of my database and load it into bigquery or I'll take you know you know these large batches, and then over time they realize oh it'd be great if I could have you know things that were within four hours, and so we'll have everything four hours. And then they'll be like, well four hours why not four minutes? And they'll you know do do smaller smaller batches, and then you know four minutes why not four seconds? And then they'll start using the streaming system. Yeah, makes sense. BigQuery is this public productization of what was an internal tool in Dremel. And at this point, Google has done this with several products. It did with Kubernetes, but Kubernetes was kind of a a rebuilding of the Borg project and TensorFlow. But TensorFlow was, I guess TensorFlow was a a rebuilding of the disbelief project to become open source. I suppose those, those open source projects are a little bit different. But in any case, this process of productizing and externalizing internal Google services has become a pattern at this point. What has Google learned or what have you learned specifically about productizing internal projects? I think one of the things that we learned that it's hard. When we first started the BigQuery project, you know, we were like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll have this done in a quarter. <laughs> and in fact, we've sort of seen that that over and over again. You know, the... I don't want to call anybody out because, you know, but there have been another number of projects where 
they've been like, yeah, well, this is a very mature internal product. Like this, you know, works very well. We'll just, you know, put a put an external API on it, and then, you know, and then that's it. No, no problem. So I think the thing that we've learned is is that it's hard. And I think, I mean, there's a number of reasons for that. One is, you know, there's there's just some impedance mismatch things, just in terms of sort of how auth is done internally and how auth is done authorization and authentication is are done are done externally and those those are the the things that are that are frustrating but you you can't really you can't really get around and i think we've sort of gotten better at that it's sort of like you know as as our systems and in, in, at google are are converging we have we have better ways for for dealing with that but certainly at the time i used to say there's some quote that says like the only hard problem is in computer science is is naming and you know i you know added you know and, and authentication, and <laughs> because it sounds like it's it's relatively straightforward, but ended up being diff- difficult. Um, other hard hard things, though, were you know at Google, all these sort of internal monitoring and systems are in place so that when something goes wrong, you can you can figure out what what happened. You know, there's there's the status pages of the of the board workers, and there's you know all these like tools that people are used to used to digging into what happens in, in, a, oh. in when something goes wrong. Oh no! And and that's really hard to to replicate for external external users because you, you you know you don't have that level of detail. And moreover, you don't want to give them that level of detail because you know you I mean a there's a security security risk of sort of letting people know like you know map out your data centers. Sort of B, you want to kind of give them sort of some higher level representations of what happened. So partly, partly so they don't have to worry about the details, but also partly so you can change them in the future. So that was that was a major major difficulty. And we're still sort of we're still sort of dealing with that. We see people in you know who are using BigQuery, and when something goes wrong, they don't really know how to how to solve their problem or how it's to serverless. How to yeah, exactly. You know, the, the problem with magic is that when the magic doesn't work. You know, you're left with like not knowing what what to do or how to how to make it magic again. And I can just imagine the engineer who joins the BigQuery team and is thinking, "Oh, I can't wait to work on the new query execution engine." And then it's day one, like, you're working on authentication for the next three months. <laughs> you know, I think one of the cool things is that is that there are all kinds of engineers, and some people like really want to work on you know yeah. the the guts of the SQL engine and some people like, like solving security problems and some people like, totally, you know, more customer facing side of things. But certainly there are some pieces that are more sexy than others and, and some stuff that just sort of got, has to, has to get done. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess, you know, final question, you know, when you look back at the evolution of how BigQuery has evolved since the Dremel paper, what are the biggest milestones that you would point out in in how the if we are talking about the actual you know the guts of the file storage and the query execution layer what are, what are the milestones what were the big breakthroughs of figuring out new ways to do this more efficiently so there was dremel x which was sort of a a major effort that kind of rewrote the rewrote the guts of how how execution happens in dremel you know that was really the the thing that changed it from being this sort of static tree that's in the dremel paper to to a more more dynamic one, there was Capacitor, which is our new our new columnar storage format, and that was you know I think we had some some 10x improvements from that. 
you know, one sort of milestone just was the, it was a team one, but, you know, we, we merged the Dremel team and the, and the BigQuery team. And that was done, that was done several years ago. But instead of thinking of BigQuery as a layer on top of, of Dremel, it became more of a, of a collaboration. And, and as, especially as the, the core Dremel folks realized that, hey, this is, this is our primary customer, our primary use case now. And that enabled us to sort of think much more, much more deeply about how to solve enterprise customer problems as opposed to sort of how do I solve the cost problems for the you know, ads teams. Hmm. And, you know, one interesting thing we learn is just sort of like how different external customers are from internal ones. And there was a lot of sort of disbelief about that in the, in the beginning. It's just like, oh, yeah, well, you know, we, we can handle, we can handle multi-petabyte queries that, you know, there's no problem. These external customers have much smaller data, you know, won't, won't be a problem. And it just, it turns out that, you know, doesn't always reduce that way. Jordan Tagani, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Wonderful. Wow.